Let me begin by suggesting that all of us have auspicious life conditions because of our connection with Dharma. We also have fantastic weather. At least Mio, you left. <laughs> All of us have auspicious life circumstances because of our connection with Dharma. Imagine a version of your life where all the challenges that you meet and will meet, but you had no wisdom to meet those textures. Imagine a version of your life where there's no inkling that what unfolds inside yourself has a deeper meaning or has a source in Dharma. Imagine a version of your life as a life where the heart can't bow to the ferociousness of the universe. but just stays clutched to a big, ugly no. Imagine a version of your life where you're a person who can't reach out for help because of the prison of the self. Or imagine you're in a version of your life where you can't reach out to help because the heart is so locked shut. It's locked shut and on that lock is engraved, me first. Me first. Imagine suffering all this birth and death, all this meeting and parting, the best, most beautiful, most desirable life that we could imagine will have meeting and parting. the beautiful, flourishing things, the vitality developed, the gifts, all of it trickles away. Imagine suffering that instead of the heart being tenderized by it because of no connection with wisdom. So living Dharma is preventative medicine for these sicknesses. And we can think big about Dharma and think big about sicknesses. We lose the forest for the tree. One way that can happen is we're cultivating a particular aspect of practice in session. Yes, this ritual was designed to optimize the cultivation of samadhi and the unfolding of awakening. But it's so much more than that too, and we can lose the forest for the tree by not appreciating exactly the profundity that we're involved with. It's easy to make a straw person in our minds and say, oh yeah, those deluded people out there who don't have dharma. That's not what this means. 
but imagine myself meeting the difficulty coming down the pipe, meeting the crisis coming down the pipe, and having only a recourse to my habit body, my me first imperative, rather than dharma. And just thinking about that makes me have a kind of internal tear. So whether we wanted to or not, this week we've been feeling deeply. We've been feeling deeply and we've been non-abiding. Anusha Enria was beautifully talking about a practice of learning to feel deeply with non-abiding. But that's what's going on all the time. The whole human condition is deeply feeling with no abiding. Even if we wanted to make a small little box out of our misery, you almost can't. Have you ever wanted so bad to prove to someone else that your life was miserable, that you suppressed your own laughter? You didn't want the evidence that your life was not miserable to slip out, because then you would lose face. The Dharma is what it is, regardless of whether we confirm it in a particular way. We've been feeling deeply and not abiding the whole time, and so is everybody else. That's why, speaking from the side of awakening, many of the ancestors say, all I see are Buddhas. One of my teachers says, it's just so strange to me that you think you're a sentient being. He says, I actually don't understand why you can't see that there's nothing but Buddha nature. I can't understand how he can't understand that I see myself as a sentient being. Such, Such is the reality. And you mentioned that awareness is not a blank slate. Form and emptiness are a unified dance. There's no thing called awareness apart from that intimacy. But there also is never not that intimacy. So we've traveled the nine divine rasas. Rasa is such a beautiful word means flavor, it means feeling. We've traveled the nine divine rasas. Attraction or sensual arousal. Humor, I hope you've had at least a little bit. Compassion slash sorrow, isn't that interesting? Anger, confidence, fear, revulsion, wonder, peace and calm. We've been these. We like to retreat to our little Buddhist safe place and say, I am aware of. 
I am aware of anger arising in me. You are the anger arising. And you're not. Form and emptiness are this intimate dance. That means, or you could say, it's all divine rasas. Can you feel it like that? There's certain rasas for me, I can't sustain this awareness. No, they feel like a problem. But others are nothing other than that play. The one I can't or don't dance with is an untapped source of vitality. That thing I want to keep, I want to keep stuffed under. That thing I don't, I, I can't accept that I too am that. There's a lot of energy there. Not only in the rasa itself, let's say it's anger. There's a lot of energy in the anger, but there's a lot of energy being expended in the holding it down, actually. One's life is a dance of not letting that arise. There is anger arising in me. It's like a beach ball. When I was a kid, I used to love holding a ball under water. Something was fascinating about that. And you could do that for, I don't know, days. And whenever you let go, it's going to pop up. There is um, an old Zen painting of um, a monk on a zabuton with horns and fangs. We have to be willing to be that being. The one on the zabuton with horns and fangs. To neither grasp at that and make a new identity. Oh, I'm an angry person. No nor um, deny it. I'm not an angry person. Anger arises in me. Turning away, touching are both wrong. The rasa I only dance with may actually be tapping me out. The way of, of being and feeling that I actually make efforts in order to stay inside of, that too is draining me. Because all of them want to flow through. In time, according to our biochemistry, everybody's different, but all of them in some way want to flow through. But identity says, no, I'm like this.
So we're including the totality of our experience. And that's not a doing, that's a not doing something that we tend to do, which is separate. Silence is pregnant with presence. Even if you don't know that, you know that. Appearances are pregnant with silence. Sometimes we say space. Why is it that you can be a demon on a cushion? Why is it that you can be a deva sitting on a cushion? Why is it you can be an animal on a cushion? Because the animal is like a a mask, and you take off that mask, there's just space. Returning to the Shurangama Sutra, there's a whole section on Avalokiteshvara, translates something as um, they who hear the cries of the world. And Avalokiteshvara is recounting, I think the basic setting is the Buddha asks the Bodhisattvas to share for the benefit of the younger students, how did they come to awakening? What method did they use? And Avalokiteshvara recounts how they became Avalokiteshvara. It was through listening to sound, through, through sound practice. This sutra, the wording, is a little awkward. Yeah. Some of the, what are they called? Are they participles, particles? Some of the things that we have in English that really s- amplify this sense of duality Like, for example, it is raining. Why do we say it and is and not just raining? Because we feel that dualistic dualistic split. We feel that lack of intimacy. And so there's an it, an is, and a raining. But not all languages have that. And Chinese is more intimate. So, anyway. This is Avalokiteshvara. And I'll inject my comments to try to make sense of it, recounting their awakening. First, I concentrated on the audio consciousness. To return to an earlier point, there's some things about the Buddhist deconstruction of how the body-mind works that are very helpful as meditators. Just the understanding of the six consciousnesses is already useful. As a natural phenomena, the ear is hearing. There is a living body, there is vitality, there is an ear organ, and there's a sound together. And of course, there needs to be an environment and other factors, there's sound. Already there's no no self there. Already there's no buffer to intimacy. There's ear consciousness and its objects. I speak and you instantly hear it. You instantly hear it, I speak. It's the same. 
First, I concentrated on the audio consciousness and allowed the sounds that were contacting the ear to flow off. And thus, audio objects subsided and were lost. Allowed the sounds that were contacting the ear to flow off. The mind isn't grasping at them. When we, when we um, listen with vivid but soft mind, the moment is shifting at light speed. There almost isn't a moment. You know? There's definitely no such thing called now. We've left now way behind. But there almost isn't a moment because light speed, it's just so... The mind lags on, for example, the reverb of this, the echo. But in doing that, there are so many other sounds that have happened. So concentrating on sound intimately teaches us about shiftingness the shiftingness, the shifty texture of, of this world. It teaches presence without fixation. I like meditating with jazz for that reason. Sorry about last night, we had some technical difficulty. There was supposed to be a saxophone. You're supposed to hear that saxophone. <laughs> So that's the first stage that Avalokiteshvara is um, expressing. Concentrated on sound and allowed the sounds that were contacting the ear to flow off. Right? No grasping in that place of signlessness, not naming, not knowing. They continue. Then, since ear contact and audio objects produce no effect, that is, no more thoughts, no more thoughts about, no more clinging, no more, oh, that bird reminds me of fill in the blank. Since ear contact and audio objects produced no effect, the mind remained in a state of clarity. One, and the phenomena of motion and stillness no longer occurred. Two. So something I've talked to some of you about is how do we go beyond meditating where we feel like it's on and off? Now there's stillness, now there's the movement of mind and I'm lost. The phenomena of motion and stillness, this alternation in our life too, but in our sitting, the first place we can realize we don't have to be in that binary because the mind remains in a state of clarity. Mind nature is empty clarity that is neither still nor moves. It's not still because it's not a thing, just some like lump, some spiritual lump, and it doesn't move because it's just clarity. So through attending to movement, the saxophone, the vibraphone, the breath sounds, the whatever, frictionlessly sailing through that which it 
sails through, it's like as if it gets polished. It's like a river stone. One of those beautifully smooth river stones. The flow makes that smoothness. So then Avalokiteshvara talks about the next stage that happened. Let me connect this, first of all, to wishlessness. It's a very common thing as in the teacher seat to someone say, oh, I had this experience and then I grasped that and it went away. You almost want to yawn when you hear that because everybody experiences that. <laughs> That's why wishlessness is so important because even in the midst of dharmas unfolding in us, we have to... Um, have this quality of wishlessness. Yeah, it's like if you get really excited if um, some beautiful bird lands on your windowsill, well, you might just scare it away. It's a good chance. So the way one stage goes to another is you stay with it, and you don't grasp at it or get too excited. And you definitely don't think, wow, I'm really a great meditator now. Can people see my aura? That's just my version. What is your version? Okay, so the next stage. Meditative absorption gradually deepened because of wishlessness. Ultimately, the distinction between audio consciousness and objects of audio consciousness was no longer in existence. The distinction between sound and this mystery that hears goes away. Ah. In the tantric teachings, they call this place um, pure pleasure. Or they say, perceiving is divine. Union. Withinness. At first, it really feels like there's some moment of contact that, for example, these words happen and then they're registered by consciousness. But at this place, form and emptiness are in their yab-yam. Form and emptiness are one. Sound and awareness, they're the same thing. And that's why Zen masters shout. This is the tingling in your hands, not just a voice. So union. Meditation changes at that point. The quality of effort is a little bit different. And just like if you read the levels of samadhi in the Pali Canon, the Buddha goes through whatever they are, 10 or 12. And with each one, he describes its quality. And he says, um, but I noticed the clinging inherent in sustaining this, and I relinquished that. And then I went to the next level. 
Avalokiteshvara says, although there is no experience of audio consciousness in hearing just the herd, right? Connecting it back to the earlier Pali canon. When in the hearing there is just the herd and no you in relation to that, meditative absorption continued to deepen. Then all awareness and objects of awareness became empty. Empty, space-like, soft-edged. We shift to the silence of unknowing. Avalokiteshvara says it like this, the awareness of emptiness expanded without boundary then emptiness and that which is empty, even those became extinct. Since all arising and subsiding had ceased, equanimity became manifest. It's the great simple zero. The mind is, maybe for lifetimes, too involved in checking out what's arising. It's too involved in trying to subtly edit experience. It's too involved in the narrative past, present, and future to simply resolve in this kind of simplicity and experience its own basic essence. But it can. And they end Suddenly, transcending both the mundane and supramundane, there was an undistracted luminosity in all the ten directions. There's a place in practice, a time in practice, that could last, I don't know how long, where we're right at the edge of the leap we need to make and fear keeps us from making it. Truly there's an experience as if one were dying. And everything inside, body and mind, says, this is wrong. No. Or maybe it's more subtle than that. And a little trickle of chatter maintains itself. But every last drop of identity, every last drop of involvement with time and the body, at least for a moment, has to be given up. And we dip into places beyond knowing, beyond our ordinary awareness, and we come back into being changed. Something about how we see is different. The where we see from is different. Becoming the rain, even for a moment, even if after that I spend my whole life completely befuddled and chasing after things, 
even having known once that quality of experience, life looks different. One's nature evident as a boundless, me-less transparency. Even for a moment, life looks different. Everything is put into perspective. So this path of practice is clearly laid, laid out for us by the ancestors. But what's very frustrating is you can't just follow the recipe. Because you are you. And I am me. And I can't follow a recipe. Its fruits manifesting are not the consequences of following a recipe. Do it right. Do it for this long. Do it with this person in this place. Who can know what the sincerity or wholeheartedness is for you but you? And even that is, is difficult to get clear about. My teacher says, the path doesn't work, you work. You know, we can get very fixated on the techniques, developing meditative skill. Sometimes people in Zen get fixated, and I don't understand how in the world this could happen, but really get into making the right gosho or looking good when they move in their robes or whatever. And start thinking it's about following the recipe to a T. But he says, the path doesn't work, you work. So I think of the secret struggles and conflicts and yeah buts in the heart. We are beings with various streams of desire and instinct animating us, for sure. For some people to make particular kind of vows I'd rather call it an oath or a promise to yourself. To make a particular kind of promise to yourself will be very powerful. To lock that oath in your heart and throw away the key. If you commit to this process beyond a timeline, then something can change. I remember when I first ordained and I made a five-year vow, which I broke and then took on again. But nonetheless, I made that vow. Something changed, because at least for those five years, I threw away the key. I said, I'm going to put this awakening on the altar, and everything else is going to be in service of that. This isn't the only way. 
It's just a way. What if we commit not only to a lifetime of practice, but lifetimes? I'm going to do this no matter what it takes. You could say in your heart right now something like this, if it feels resonant to you. And I'm not saying it should feel resonant to you, but I will awaken and make that my absolute priority. I'm willing to let go of whatever is necessary. Please help me. This is something Chosen Roshi would tell me to say in moments of hopelessness. I will awaken and make that my absolute priority. I'm willing to let go of whatever is necessary. It's interesting to finally be able to say that with less of a quiver in my voice. Please help me. And say that 10,000 times. Say that 100,000 times. It is said that one cannot enter the great vehicle without bodhicitta. And bodhi, bodhicitta is something like brokenheartedness at how rough existence is for beings in every realm, plus the wisdom of shunyata, plus emptiness. It's not a kind of bleeding heart, the world is terrible, I'm guilty, so let me work really hard to change things. It's something impossible. It's being brokenhearted and seeing that it's a dream at the same time. Not falling to either side. It's embodied in the the Four Great Vows. We've all been tricked into saying them many, many times. There's an effect to that. (laughs) If you're at the monastery long enough, you'll have nights where you're just tight-lipped. (laughs) that's real (laughs) here's a wording of the the four bodhisattva vows beings are numberless beyond imagination I commit to freeing them delusions are so numerous and subtle they cannot be completely swept away I commit to completely sweep them away Skillful means that sweep away the delusions of being, I commit to learning them. Awakening's way is most sublime, I commit to becoming it. I I was speaking earlier about this place where we tiptoe around the invitation right in front of us. And that's, that's no small thing. This practice at a certain point confronts you with the reality that this is not about you becoming a more peaceful version of yourself and living the same life. 
In fact, it's not even about you at all. To enter the, the deeper stream of the path is to consent to see that this life is, is dreamness. It's not this thing apart from mind that we are told it was. The great vehicle begins by trying to tolerate the perception that there are no beings. There are no beings and there are no non-beings either. There aren't selves or things. There aren't non-selves or no things. This is what our tradition teaches. Appearance. Appearance is what you get. Appearance is all there's ever been. Appearance is all there can be. That there are no beings does not mean that there is not appearance. It means nothing more and nothing less than appearance. So self, the felt belief of being a thing among, th among things, and this belief is so deep that Hakuin Zenji, who was the consummate passionate practitioner, said, it took 30 years for my satori to be evident in my body. The felt belief of being a thing among things is a problem that cannot be solved on its own terms. And actually it's not a problem at all, like the relief when recognizing a snake is just a coiled rope. When you're having a nightmare and then you wake up and it feels so good to know that that was all just made of mind. We free the rasas to dance in non-abiding. Suffering appears for sure. Cats, dogs, buses, homeless folks, climate crisis, AI terminator scenarios, buckets full of kale, it all appears for sure. But there's no abiding there. So in Dharma's wholeness, we can neither actually affirm the existence of beings nor negate them. That's how we free them. It's more simple than we think. Someone comes into Sanzen and says, I'm so angry. And I'd say, no, you're not. You're smiling right at me. Where is the anger? Well, just let me go back to my cushion and think about it. 
that would be that moment's appearance. There are many images in the teachings that try to communicate this point that is both so simple and so profound that I definitely don't have the authority to talk about it, but it's our tradition. They talk about life, being, all the language misleads, you see. You can't say anything without alluding to being. But they say it's like this. There's a great mirror and there are reflections appearing in it. Apart from the mirror, there is no whatever is reflected there. It's a reflection. And likewise, there's no mirror without reflections. No reflection without mirror, no mirror without reflections. All things are like the reflections in a mirror. We free beings from being, allowing them to be. Our thinking works in is and is not. When we think about someone, something, whether ourselves or others, it's mostly in the form of is or is not. Such and such is. But that's not possible because being is not being, it's just appearance. We free beings by seeing they're not beings and allowing them to be the moment's appearance. Reflections in a, in a mirror. The moment's appearance coaxes response. People have this um, fear that they'd become very indifferent if they were to come to this place of practice. You might come to great equanimity. You might not rail against the universe as being incorrectly manifesting. You might not. You might be just as passionate about what you care for. But this moment's appearance coaxes response. But then that resolves tracelessly. It's like the silence after a poem. Or like the space after a piano flourish. It appears vivid. It coaxes response, it's gone, and it's, why should it be anything other than that? Chosen and Hogan have said, one of the things that's difficult about working with Harada Roshi is he so lives in appearance that he sometimes doesn't know who they are. And he's like, wait a sec, we've worked with you for 30 years, hey. His attendant says, oh, this is Chosen and Hogan. He goes, oh, Hogan-san. <laughs> All being, inside and outside, my own karma's dreaming, vivid and gone. What we're saying is not science fiction, it's not psychedelic, it's not other than the way things are right now. There's only 
And as soon as you try to designate what there is, it's already been replaced. Notice that. The next vow, delusions are so numerous and subtle, I vow to sweep them away. Buddha's view is that we seem to have appeared here in this human realm because we still want to dream. We could say we love the dream. That's why we're here. Traditional cosmology would say beings are born by the force of their karma and desire. According to their aggregated force of karma and desire, they appear in the realm and the particular circumstances they appear in. But we could say we love the dream. How could you not love at least some of the dream? Bodhisattvas have to love the dream enough to stay engaged. Someone said, you should keep at least one or two delusions. <laughs> Isn't that a relief? Okay. <laughs> delusions are beyond number and so subtle, invites a kind of humility. Just like throwing the key away with one's aspiration changes things. The humility that I'm a dreamer can change things too. I dream up stuff. I dream up myself. I dream up other people. I have all kinds of ideas about who people are without asking them who they are, without listening to who they are, without meeting them. I look around at the world and instantly there's wrong and right. There's the good and there's the bad. Everything is split into this binary. Hope and fear follow that. A life based around avoiding what I fear and going towards what I hope follows. I'm asleep. I'm dreaming from the Buddha's point of view. I dreamed up myself. I is my own dreaming. Just watch the mind. It just dreams, it just dreams itself up all the time. <laughs> when I'm in session like this, I come to this point and I have like, three or four musical instruments that I want to buy and learn to play. They just, just, <laughs> oh, I want to be like Kosho. Just dreaming. Person, place, and thing is my own dreaming. Even when I get there to the person, place, and thing, if without practice, I'm still dreaming about what's right in front of me. And it's reinforced by collective dreaming. Yeah. Each realm is just beings agreeing on what's true based because they share the same dream. It's like how we have the tendency to only hang out with people who agree with us. Dream is magnetized towards dream, and so we forget its dream. Here's a radical one. An ancestor says, life and appearances don't come to you. It comes from you. And so the Buddha said, reduced dreaming and you have a better dream. 
You have a real dream. Because in a world of appearance only, there can't be a not dream. Is it still a dream? Everything in our lives is just so shifty. For sometimes someone is a friend, then they become an enemy. Something brings great pleasure, it becomes a source of pain. Something was very difficult, it opens up into joy. A career, a life, a relationship seems so stable, one condition changes, the whole thing collapses. Something else arises. Skillful means that sweep away the delusions of being, I commit to learning them. So we understand how this mind dreams, all the nine rasas. And we do that long enough and we have a basis for understanding how all mind dreams. My mind is not the same as yours, but it kind of is. We sweep away even the notion of delusion. Is there at this moment, at this moment, some appearance you can point to and say, here is confusion, here is delusion, here is dukkha? If you are a being in distress, then what is the actual experience of that distress? Can you point to it? Can you isolate it? Can you say, yes, here it is? You could point and say, well, my heart hurts. But if we go into that, what we find there is we find this texture, this intimate texture of contraction. What kind of words would we describe? But that's an intimate texture. That's not suffering. There's no afflicted person within. We don't get all heroic and all Buddhistic and try to save all the beings out there because Is there at this moment some appearance you can point to and say, here is wisdom, here is awareness, here is dharma? There's no spiritual Zen person within. Or if there is, then what are the qualities? Look. Yeah, at least with a a lectern I can say, look, this seems pretty real. But with all the, the Dharma notions or being a practitioner, being a not good one, a good one, I can't find anything that I could actually touch. Nothing that could withstand a moment of, of looking. So we, in our practice, without diminishing the difficult textures that some beings live in, 
the difficultly textured appearances that some beings live in, we realize the non-necessity of being a suffering being. The non-necessity of being a suffering being. And then at this moment, see the non-necessity of being a suffering being and think of beings who may be a little bit more sure that they are X, Y, Z, fill in the blank, solidly existing. And what, in your, what is the response from your heart in witnessing that? What does this seeing want to do or not want to do? The last vow. Awakening's way is most sublime. I commit to becoming it. I always disliked the translation we have because it sounded so like sectarian. I would cringe if there were people from other traditions in the room. Like, the Buddha way is unsurpassable. It's the best. Let's go do it. And I would just be like, Rrr. whatever is true, good, and beautiful is awakening way. True, good, and beautiful may or may not be in the thing which is beheld, and it may or may not be in the eye of the beholder. But the awakening way is the true, the good, and the beautiful. Is this Zendo true, good, beautiful? This forest, the sound. The field of benefaction is formless. Buddhism, Zen, is only one form. The formless field. If Zen stirs your heart and your vitality is true, good, and beautiful, and as true and good and beautiful as created things can be, why not commit to embody it? That's the question that this... this Vow asks, if you resonate with something as true, good, and beautiful, why not commit to it? In other words, what is the non-commitment? And if this tradition, which is just one expression of the formless field, is not true, good, and beautiful to you, then what else could you commit to embody? What is non-commitment? It can never be someone else's embodiment. You can't become someone born in an ancient culture. It's embarrassing to say, I used to think maybe I could be like someone born in an ancient culture. Nor should you. And yet when we are more than ourselves, we are authentically ourselves. You become you when you're more than you. The awakening way is most sublime. 
I promise to embody it. Nobody knows what you should commit to. The Buddhas and ancestors have never said that shoulds are an eternal, actual feature of the universe. They said, do this and there's this effect, do this and there's that effect. But our attitudes and actions shape ourselves and they shape our environments. Our environments and companions shape ourselves. You can't not be in that situation of shaping and being shaped. Imagine a version of yourself where indecision has you waste away waiting on the sidelines. And whatever you feel is true, good, and beautiful, you can't step into the longings invitation. We can live in lukewarm waters until the body grows very, very cold. Of course I'm biased. Of course I'm biased. And you're biased by coming here. The most sublime is most sublime. In the Buddha's teaching, it basically says that as far as happiness is concerned, this is the best bang for your buck. But we have to test that out. We have to see for ourselves. I'll end with a, a poem by TK. This is a quote by um, Carl Jung. When you think of Carl Jung, this is someone in the World War I and World War II era. It is often tragic to see how blatantly a person bungles their own life and the life of others, yet remains totally incapable of seeing how much the whole tragedy originates in themselves and how they continually feed it and keep it going. And in the poem, my body fell in love with my spirit, sunlight across interiority. Not all relationships start off easily. Theirs too was complicated. She said, you're a wolf in a wolf's clothing and I am a lamb. I overcame my impulses, she smiled. She said, you're a clay pot, I am an expanse. So I broke myself open on the pavement of my longing. She took my hand. She said, but you are so concerned with pain and pleasure, gain and loss, fame and shame. I am a forgetfulness of the world's desiring. I turned desiring into love, waited, she kissed my lips. She said, your mind is like water, disturbed at every breeze. I am a brightness of thick silence. Then love made my mind honey, 
or even a rock dropped in causes no ripple. It's a description of heartfelt samadhi. Love made my mind honey where even a rock dropped in causes no ripple. Our love met in union. My body fell in love with my spirit. Now the glow of knowing, feeling, and being, sky, sun, and world have become singleness, and all I see is their love play.